Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhan. We now have a special mini-series within the spiritual crisis of our time in which I intend to examine Jung's answer to Job, one of his most enigmatic and fascinating books, written in 1952 and which was clearly of enormous personal importance to him. In this episode, we will explore Jung's own psychology, especially in his childhood, as a background to this work, present Jung's account of his religious and theological struggles in his adolescence, give a brief account of the story of Job as presented in the Bible, and present the question posed by this biblical story that Jung felt he had to answer. This will provide the essential psychological and textual background so that we can proceed with an exploration of what is widely regarded as one of Jung's most difficult yet intriguing texts. This mini-series, probably consisting of five to six episodes, is somewhat of an interlude within the flow of recent episodes that have been presenting creation myths, the theological position that the universe is a manifestation of spirit, the origin of human consciousness, the banishment from the Garden of Eden, and the so-called fall from the primal unconscious into consciousness. The exploration of the mythology of Job is, as you will see, actually part of this story, and indeed Jung's reaction to it takes us into modern times, since he was deeply preoccupied with a modern apocalypse, which could mean an end to human consciousness itself. If you are concerned with the nature of evil and the dangers to humanity in our own times, and if you seek a metaphysical understanding of these all-important matters, then sooner or later you will encounter Jung's book. It is almost inevitable that you will find this work deeply baffling, as I did when I first read it. Naturally, a reading of the Book of Job in the Bible is highly recommended, as well as an attempt to read, or reread Young's answer to Job. I hope this miniseries can help in this journey. You may also find it useful to listen to earlier podcasts in this series, numbers 6 to 9, for example, which tell of other parts of Young's life as described in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. So let us begin by presenting four stories that Jung tells of his childhood. In the opening chapter of Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung describes his earliest dream at the age of four years old, and which preoccupied him all his life. He was in a field and found a dark hole in the ground with a stone stairway leading down into the earth. Fearfully he descended and saw a room with a red carpet leading to a platform on which was a throne of gold. On it was something like a large tree trunk that reached to the ceiling, but it was made of skin and flesh, and on top of its round head there was one eye looking upwards. Young says he was paralysed with terror and heard his mother's voice saying, Yes, just look at him. That is the man-eater. This dream haunted him for years, and he came to think of it as a phallus, a subterranean god, not to be named. He says Jesus was never quite real for him, for he would always think of his underground counterpart, 
a frightful revelation which had been given to him without his seeking it. It was around this time that Young's mother went into a sanatorium. He also believed his mother had psychic episodes, experiences with ghosts or the supernatural, and that he and one of his daughters shared this trait. As Young tells the story of his early years, it is clear that he suffered an intense sense of alienation that began in his childhood. He had also mentioned to Freud that he had suffered some form of sexual abuse when young. One of his ways of trying to deal with his sense of alienation was his closely guarded secret. He writes, My disunion with myself and uncertainty in the world led me to an action which at the time was quite incomprehensible to me. His story was that he had a pencil case with a ruler, at the end of which he carved a little man with hat and boots. He painted him black and put him in the pencil case in his little bed. With him he placed a black stone from the Rhine, which he painted so that it was divided into an upper and lower half. All this was a great secret, and he hid it in the attic, secretly visiting it. He writes, No one could discover my secret and destroy it. I felt safe, and the tormenting sense of being in conflict with myself was gone. In all difficult situations, whenever I had done something wrong, or my feelings had been hurt, I thought of my little man and his smooth-coloured stone. Young continues, I was satisfied to possess something that no one knew and no one could get at. It was an inviolable secret which must never be betrayed, for the safety of my life depended on it. This possession of a secret had a very powerful formative influence on my character. I consider it the essential factor of my boyhood. Similarly, he never told anyone about the dream of the phallus until Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He says, The little wooden figure with the stone was a first attempt, still unconscious and childish, to give shape to the secret. I was always absorbed by it and had the feeling I ought to fathom it. And yet I did not know what it was I was trying to express. Consciously I was religious in the Christian sense, though always with a reservation what about that thing under the ground? And when religious teachings were pumped into me and I was told, this is beautiful and this is good, I would think to myself, yes, but there is something else, something very secret that people don't know about. He continues in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, this episode with the carved mannequin formed the climax and the conclusion of my childhood. It lasted about a year. A strict taboo hung over all these matters, inherited from my childhood. I could never talk about them with friends. My entire youth can be understood in terms of this secret. It induced in me an almost unendurable loneliness. My one great achievement during those years was that I resisted the temptation to talk about it with anyone. Thus, the pattern of my relationship to the world was already prefigured. Today, as then, I am a solitary, because I know things and must hint at things 
which other people do not know and usually do not even want to know. The third circumstance of his youth is told in chapter 2 of Memories, Dreams, Reflections. One day at the age of 11 he was leaving his school in Basel and he passed the beautiful cathedral and thought of God on his golden throne. But then he began to choke and felt something terrible was coming to his mind, which he had to resist with all his might. Yet he did not know what it was. He says, quote, The next two days were sheer torture. On the third night, however, the torment became so unbearable that I no longer knew what to do. But who wants to force me to think something I don't want to know? This could not go on. At the same time, I could not surrender before I understood what God's will was and what he intended. For I was now certain that he was the author of this desperate problem. I knew beyond a doubt that I would ultimately be compelled to break down, to give way, but I did not want it to happen without my understanding it, since the salvation of my eternal soul was at stake. God knows that I cannot resist much longer, and he does not help me, although I am on the point of having to commit the unforgivable sin. Unquote. He continues, I thought it over again and arrived at the same conclusion. Obviously God also desires me to show courage. If that is so, and I go through with it, then he will give me his grace and illumination. I gathered all my courage, as though I were about to leap forthwith into hell fire, and let the thought come. I saw before me the cathedral, the blue sky. God sits on his golden throne high above the world, and from under the throne an enormous turd falls upon the sparkling new roof, shatters it, and breaks the wall of the cathedral asunder. After this experience he felt enormous relief. Instead of damnation he felt grace and bliss, and wept with happiness and gratitude. He had eventually followed the command of God, and it was an illumination. Many things became clear to him. He began to feel that there was a dark side to God, and this was a terrible secret. This put a shadow over his whole life. It isolated him, because as far as he could see, no one else had these experiences. It was as if there was something evil or sinister in God, and also in himself. This increased his sense of inferiority, and he felt depraved. He says, But the greater my inferiority feelings became, the more incomprehensible did God's grace appear to me. With the experience of God in the cathedral, I had fallen into something bad, something evil and sinister, though at the same time it was a kind of distinction. I wanted to find out whether other people had undergone similar experiences. I never succeeded in discovering so much as a trace of them in others. As a result, I had the feeling 
that I was either outlawed or elect, accursed or blessed. The fourth account of his youth was Jung's stories of a split inside of himself, as told in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. In brief, Jung describes himself as an introverted, solitary boy who had, on the one hand, personality one, a clumsy, awkward, mathematical dunce of a boy living in real time at the end of the 19th century, and, on the other hand, personality two, an old man living in the 18th century who dressed in high-buckle shoes, wore a powdered wig and drove a fine carriage. He also remembers an event as a young boy when he sat on a stone and was confused. Whether he was sitting on the stone or he was the stone being sat on. We have also noted that his secret mannequin hidden in the attic was accompanied by a stone which was painted to appear divided in two parts. Donald Winnicott, the famous British child psychoanalyst, after reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, suggested a psychotic breakdown at age three, citing maternal failure and depression as the sources of the pathology manifesting in Jung's divided self. Jung himself wondered later if he was menaced by a psychosis, particularly during his confrontation with the unconscious, 1913 to 1917. After Winnicott's diagnosis at distance, there have been many authors and analysts who have given their views, but the consensus is that Jung's childhood disturbance was not psychotic. However, I suspect that Jung did not suffer a mere neurosis. His affliction was more serious, and he was eventually forced to descend and face it, as it were to consciously go mad. His vulnerability lasted beyond his childhood and propelled his search for creative solutions to it. Next, let us look at Jung's account of his religious and even theological struggles in his adolescence. One of the unusual features of his traumatic dream of the underground phallus was that he felt that it was some kind of revelation that was forced upon him. It had a mysterious significance and was an alternative to the spiritual teaching of Christianity that he was receiving from family, church and school. The underground phallus was a different type of god. Similarly, in his story of the Christian god defecating on the great cathedral, Jung felt it was some kind of revelation that God was forcing him to have against his will. When he finally had the vision, it was an illumination, and many things became clear to him, including all the difficulties and failings of his father. Jung was forced into confronting an image of the dark side of God. This is exactly the psychological ground for the book of Job. Jung repeatedly affirms in Memories, Dreams, Reflections that as he grew up, he secretly felt in conflict with the traditional Christian conception of God. The dark side, or even evil side of God, was something very real to him. And moreover, God wanted him to know it. He accepted that this made him an outcast and separated him from the world. In Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Young talks about his search for God when he was a boy. In his mother's family, there were six parsons, 
and in his father's family there were three, including his father. He describes listening to many religious conversations, but thinking, yes, yes, that is all very well, but what about the secret? A secret is also the secret of grace. None of you know anything about that. You don't know that God wants to force me to do wrong, that he forces me to think abominations in order to experience his grace. He describes searching through his father's library for whatever he could find on God's spirit and consciousness. He devoured whole books, but came away none the wiser. He even searched in his father's Lutheran Bible. Young says that, unfortunately, the conventional edifying interpretation of Job prevented me from taking a deeper interest in the book. I would have found consolation in it, especially in chapter 9, verses 30 to 31. Quote, Though I wash myself with snow water, yet will you plunge me in the dirt. Unquote. So here we have evidence of how, later in life, Young felt that the book of Job addressed the question that so worried him. Around the age of 18, Young had many discussions with his father, but they both found them disagreeable. His father insisted on the need for faith, and that his son's thinking and search for knowledge should be abandoned. This was to become a major issue for Young. In a BBC television interview shortly before his death, he was asked if he believed in God. Famously, he answered with a twinkle in his eye, I don't need to believe, I know. Clearly this went back to those early years and was one of the leitmotifs of his life. Also, one of the reasons for his intense attachment to Gnostics was precisely on this point. They sought gnosis, knowledge, and were not content with faith. Now we give a brief account of the story of Job as presented in the Bible. Chapter 1 introduces Job as a righteous man, blessed with wealth, sons and daughters. The scene then shifts to heaven, where God asks Satan, translated from Hebrew as the accuser, for his opinion of Job's piety. Satan accuses Job of being pious only because God has materially blessed him. If everything Job had were taken away from him, then he would surely curse God. Yahweh gives Satan permission to take Job's wealth and kill his children and servants. But Job nevertheless praises God. Quote, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Unquote. In chapter 2, God further allows Satan to afflict Job's body with boils. Job sits in ashes and his wife prompts him to curse God and die. But Job answers, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In chapter 3, instead of cursing God, Job laments the night of his conception and the day of his birth. He longs for death. His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, visit him, but only to accuse him of committing sin and tell him that his suffering must be deserved. 
Job responds with scorn and says they are miserable comforters. Since a just God would not treat him so harshly, patience is difficult. And the creator should not take his creatures so lightly to come up against them with such force, says Job. Job now gives up the pious attitude and admonishes God for the disproportionate anger against him. He sees God as intrusive and suffocating, unforgiving, angry, fixated on punishment, hostile and destructive. Job then moves from the injustice inflicted upon himself to God's supposed governance of the world. He suggests that the wicked have taken advantage of the needy and the helpless who remain in hardship, but God does nothing to punish them. Next, in chapter 28, there follows a poem on the inaccessibility of wisdom. Where is the wisdom to be found, it asks, and concludes that it has been hidden from man. Job contrasts his previous fortune with his present low condition, an outcast, mocked and in pain. He protests his innocence, lists the principles he has lived by, and demands that God answer him. Elihu, a new character in the drama, now states that wisdom comes from God, who reveals it through dreams and visions to those who will then declare their knowledge. Next, in chapter 38, Yahweh speaks from a whirlwind, accusing Job of ignorance. He answers none of his questions about the reasons for his suffering or the nature of the divine justice. Rather, he contrasts Job's weakness with his, Yahweh's, divine wisdom and omnipotence. At the end of two long monologues, Job makes a response, admits God's power, his own insignificance and his complete lack of knowledge. He retracts everything and repents in dust and ashes. In the final chapter, God tells the friends of Job that they have not spoken of what is right, as his servant Job has done. They are told to make a burnt offering with Job as their intercessor, for only to him will I show favour. Job is restored to health, riches and family, and lives to see his children to the fourth generation. That concludes our synopsis of the Book of Job from the Bible. In summary, Young, as an infant and young boy, suffered an intense and disturbing inner world, possibly originating in a mixture of an inherited condition and his relationship with his mother, from whom he was separated from the age of three when she entered a sanatorium. A divided self might be a fair way of describing his condition. He took many compensatory measures to protect himself, including his isolation and the mannequin in the attic. He felt lonely and at times accursed. However, his dreams and visions, the phallus and the cathedral, for example, forced themselves upon his consciousness. His intense and unusual inner world expressed themselves in a tremendous difficulty with the Christian teaching that was so prevalent in his family and environment. He also began to feel that God was divided and was forcing an alternative view upon him. God, 
obliged him to suffer these dreams and visions so that he could truly receive grace. Young, therefore, from his early years, actively suffered Job's problem, a suffering that he could not understand and that was inflicted by God. Young, like Job, could find no answer from his friends and family. He also felt condemned and an outcast. He could therefore later identify with Job and articulate what was Job's question. What is the dark side of God? <laughs>